Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here. This is Authentic Biochemistry, and it is the 23rd of January, 2022. <clears throat> now, last time I started a new series of this mini program of lectures, and I was talking about anabolism, right, or biosynthesis, if we're talking about biochemical pathways, which we are, of course. And I was at the point of starting to discuss the acetylcholic carboxylase in more detail. And then, of course, I ran out of time. And I apologize for not um, ending the show as I normally do by stopping and saying, okay, next time. It was because the timer I was using was, uh, it was started too late. So I didn't realize I was going to get cut off. But anyway, apology over. Let's get right back into acetylcholic carboxylase. So that enzyme, remember, is essentially the gatekeeping or regulatory enzyme for the movement of carbon from various compartments within the eukaryotic cell to fatty acid synthesis de novo, which is always in the cytoplasm, as long as we're not talking about elongation or desaturation or any other alteration like substitution of fatty acids, okay, it's in the cytoplasm. And we know that the carbon can also start in the cytoplasm, that is via glucose. Glucose can be taken up by a cell. It can be run through the glycolytic cycle, generating NADH. And of course, the end pro one of the end products can be pyruvic acid. Of course, the another major end product would be lactate. Now, I also mentioned to you that we were following the biosynthesis of NADPH and the recycling of the NAD for glycolysis. And we went through all that last time. So hopefully that is in your prefrontal cortex now. Because now I want to remind you about the enzyme mechanism in a little bit of detail. So the enzyme binds to a cofactor known as biotin. And we'll talk a lot about that later, but biotin can be carboxylated. So you have an enzyme biotin complex, covalently bound biotin, and you pick up bicarbonate, and then you transfer that bicarbonate at the oxidation state of a carbanion, CO2 minus. Now, a little bit about bicarbonate. Bicarbonate is picked up by an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase. And it favors the reaction going from CO2 aqueous to bicarbonate, at least at physiological pH, pH-dependent reaction, which is not uncommon in most enzyme-catalyzed reactions. <clears throat> now, the HCO3- that's bicarbonate, is what we're talking about as a substrate for the entry of carbon into this reaction. So understand the significance of carbonic anhydrase. That enzyme is responsible for taking atmospheric gaseous carbon dioxide, and after it becomes an aqueous dissolved gas, the synthesis of bicarbonate secures its utilization and the fixing of carbon from the atmosphere. Now, this 
has global importance because it helps basically generate the carbon cycle on the planet. And we're going to talk about that, I think, sometime just in a very broad-based way by talking about photosynthesis and photorespiration in higher plants, but also various kinds of non-oxygenic photosynthesis in sea-thriving algae. Okay, and we will talk about that because I want you to get a full understanding of these global cycles, like the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the sulfur cycle, so that you understand how it fits into regular biochemistry. So I just already told you right now that gaseous atmospheric CO2 is fixed into organic compounds in animals, in your system, in fact, by the fact that there's an enzyme that has a covalently bound biotin residue, and that biotin is able to pick up carbon directly uh, when it is bound to the acetylcholine carboxylase. So the reaction of bicarbonate plus ATP uh, will lead to ADPPI, so you hydrolyze ATP to drive the reaction because you're making now this bond between the carbon from carbon dioxide and the biotin. And you make what's known as a carboxybiotinial enzyme, which then basically is at the right oxidation state and free energy, we're talking Gibbs free energy here, so that the enthalpy and indeed the entropy of the reaction will favor the acetyl-CoA condensation with the carboxy residue bound to the biotin, bound to the enzyme. And the product of that reaction is malonyl-CoA. So then now you have a thioester. And I told you the thioesters mean that the carbonyl that's associated with that thioester bond is highly reactive. And that carbonyl is going to be all the difference in the world on how you do biosynthesis. So sulfur chemistry, and then therefore sulfur biochemistry, very ancient. And you see a lot of involvement of sulfur metabolism um, in both catabolic and anabolic processes. Okay. So that's part one. Now, the formation of the malonyl CoA is actually a two step reaction. So, first thing that happens is this ATP dependent carboxylation of the biotinyl moiety bound to the enzyme. And then the second is a transfer of the carboxyl to the acetyl CoA, which is the essentially the acceptor. So the first reaction is actually part of this protein is called the biotin carboxylase and it requires magnesium ions. And then the second part of that reaction where you take the enzyme biotin complex with the carboxybiotin residue plus acetyl-CoA, that's called the transcarboxylase. Okay. So the amino acid sequence in the domain structure of the acetyl-carboxylase is very well conserved among all eukaryotes. This is at the amino acid level, right? So antibodies raised against an animal acetylcocarboxylase will actually be able to detect a fungal acetylcocarboxylase. So that's the kind of cross-reactivity we're talking about. <clears throat> now, these two catalytic domains in the ACCAs, this biotin carboxylase and the transcarboxylase, are located specifically in the amino and carboxy terminus 
of the protein. And between those domains, domains lies another conserved region, and this is the biotin binding site. It has a specific amino acid triplet known as MET, lysine, MET. Okay? So I want you to keep this in mind when we talk more about its mode of action. So that's within the biotin carboxyl carrier protein domain. Now, the presumed ATP and bicarbonate binding sites within the carboxylase domain, and indeed the acetyl-CoA binding site within the transcarboxylate domain, have been identified by sequence analysis and have been confirmed by various uh, other kind of analytical methods to be well described and understood at this point. And we can tell you that the major difference between the animal and the yeast carboxylases are really only at about the first 100 or so amino terminal amino acid residues. So that ends up at about the center of the polypeptide. And that's interesting because the center is where you get a lot of the covalent and allosteric regulation of the enzyme, particularly the animal form, the mammalian form, the human form. And as I stated in the last lecture, that allosteric regulation or covalent modification regulating activity has to do with phosphorylation, dephosphorylation. So the minimal functional unit, this is interesting, of the protein is actually known as a homodimer. So you have two polypeptides identical and they form a homodimer, okay? So they have a quaternary state. And we were talking last time about quaternary tertiary states of proteins and how we could try to mimic that discussion for lipids, right? So this is a homodimer. And another term for it is a protomer because in the presence of citric acid, which remember leaves the mitochondria and enters the cytoplasm where the carboxylase resides, it takes this inactive dimer protomer and it turns it into a catalytically active polymer of the enzyme. So catalytically active conformation, which undergoes a slow, and yes, it's reversible, polymerization, but you end up making a long acetyl-CoA carboxylase filamentous polymeric protein. And it's about 100 angstrom wide, and it's almost 5,000 angstrom long. So this is a huge protein. And in that, indeed, it, it probably has upwards of 20 protomers. So each one of those protomers is a dimer, so that means 40 different polypeptides bound together because of citrate binding to make now the conformer, which is the most biologically active. This makes perfect sense. Because citric acid acting as a catalyst for this um, filamentous polymeric structural conformation is because citrate has left the mitochondrion. If citrate builds it up to high enough concentration, it means that carbon is now becoming available for the enzyme. What kind of carbon? Acetyl-CoA. Remember this enzyme carries out the synthesis of malonyl-CoA from acetyl-CoA and bicarbonate. So basically, citrate isn't a direct substrate for this carboxylase, 
but it's once removed. So it's accumulation and residence in the cytoplasm is enough of a harbinger of an increase of carbon flow into the cytosol for an anabolic pathway, such as fatty acid synthesis. By the way, cholesterologenesis follows the same pathway at the beginning, at the very beginning, in terms of carbon sources. And so you might wonder why would fatty acid synthesis be so intimately linked with citrate. And of course, citrate is part of the citric acid cycle, the TCA cycle, or the Krebs cycle, all uh, synonyms, of course. Because citric acid normally is metabolized in the cycle. Easiest thing to explain. And after the aconitase enzyme, you have isocitrate dehydrogenase. And then you have what other reactions in the TCA? We have the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase. And you have the succinate dehydrogenase. And then after the fumarase, you have malate dehydrogenase. And all those dehydrogenases, one of their products is NADHH+. It's a reduced form of nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. And the succinate dehydrogenase, rather than making NADH, will make flavin adenine dinucleotide, reduced form. All of that, all that NADH and all that FADH2, is, of course, readily available, readily available, for the electron transport chain and the mitochondrion. For what? But all of that nucleotide, the flavin and the nicotinamide, will be oxidized in the electron transport chain from the four complexes, right? The quinone in association. And then the fifth complex is going to pump protons in from between the intramembranous space between the two membranes of the mitochondria. When it does so, It'll turn that F dot F1 protein and swivel it. And that mechanical motor operation will allow the synthesis of ATP from ADP plus PI. So if citrate isn't going through that complete oxidation, remember citrate came from acetyl-CoA and, and oxalacetic acid, both of which can be synthesized by pyruvic acid, which comes from the glycolytic cycle, or among other things, right? It would mean that the TCA cycle isn't able to churn out more NADH, which means the ratio of NADH to NAD is more than one. So the product of all those dehydrogenases is NADH. NADH builds up. You get product inhibition of those reactions because NADH binds to the same site as NAD. And NAD would be the substrate, right? So... That's why it's so absolutely vital for the citrate in the cytoplasm to induce the polymerization of the acetylchloric carboxylase uh, for one major significant reason. When you're in the anabolic mode, what is the cell doing? If it's a eukaryotic cell and it's not in some kind of terminally differentiated state, such as, say, a neuron, it's going to get ready to divide. Okay? So when the cell is ready to divide, what does it need? Well, it needs to replicate its genome. But another thing it needs to do is lay down membrane. And what does the membrane have to have in its composition? Fatty acids, complex lipids, and cholesterol, among proteins, etc. So charging the fatty acid synthase with the carbon that comes from citrate and inducing it and having it associated directly with the regulation of the tricarboxylic acid cycle 
is fundamentally the issue of the cell's fate so that it can reproduce by division, by mitosis, you see. That's why it's critically important. Now, maybe you'd never thought about all that before, but now you can. So we got this protomer of about, um, we got we got this uh, polymer of about 20 protomers. And that polymeric structure basically stabilizes that enzyme in its correct most active conformation. So it carries out the reaction. You make malcoa. Now, depolymerization and inactivation of silicocarboxylase is promoted by the major end product of fatty acid synthesis, which is long-chain acyl-CoA thioesters. And in fact, they are direct competitors with citrate, which acts to activate that polymerization. Isn't that interesting? Now, malcoa the direct product of the reaction, also acts as an inhibitor, but primarily with only one isoform of the acetylcholic oxalase, and there are at least two. There's a third one that also exists, but I'm just going to talk about two when I get to it. So the two major forms of the carboxylase are known as alpha and beta, and of course they've been described mostly in animals, and they have basically different roles from each other than you might think. Oh, by the way, this is once again, Sali Wakil's lab, the one that first figured out what biotin was used for in bio and biological systems and pulled apart this whole carboxylase reaction, by the way. So the <coughs> alpha form is a predominant form expressed in the cytoplasm in, say, the adipose or in the hepatocyte or maybe the mammary gland. And what it does is it synthesizes malonyl-CoA so that you can synthesize fatty acids. Now, the beta form is a little bit longer or heavier or more mass. The beta form is 280 kilodaltons and, and, and humans, and the alpha form is 265. So that probably means more regulatory capacity, don't you know? It's expressed mainly in heart and skeletal muscle, so not the liver, right? Not the mammary gland. You understand how this is working now. Think about the functions of these various regions, not the adipose, right? The beta forms in the muscle, cardiac and skeletal. And both of those have relatively low lipogenic capacity, but they still synthesize lipids, right? And for, of course, produce malonyl-CoA for other purposes. Now, interestingly, the beta form is regulated almost absolutely by its product, malonyl-CoA, which acts as a negative regulator. And it's also a negative regulator of the enzyme known as carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, CPT1, right? And in so doing that, it controls the flux of fatty acids into the mitochondria for beta oxidation. So the two isoforms exhibit extensive sequence similarity but the differences are going to be in that roughly 100 to 120 different amino acid residues. And it's going to be in the amino terminus of that beta form. And what that does, those extra amino acids, is it anchors the acetylcobaxylase beta to the outer mitochondrial membrane. That's right. 
So the, what that means is that for carbon to be entering the mitochondrion, you can't be having fatty acid synthesis at the same time you're having beta oxidation because that would be what we call a futile cycle. It's within one cell. You know, it's the idea of the distribution of the terms across two potentially contradictory statements, right? So what, I, what do I mean by that? You can't have both A and not A unless it's at a different time and place, right? So that's the excluded middle term in categorical logic, of course. Now, what I'm telling you, we follow categorical logic in biochemical pathways. So you can't very well be synthesizing using acetylcholcarboxylase to synthesize fatty acids, which will end up being longitudinal coeds in the cytoplasm. At the same time, you're driving acyl carbon, that is fatty acid carbon, into the mitochondrion through that CPT1, CPT2, the carnitine palmitic oil transferases, to drive beta oxidation. Because why would you synthesize fatty acids just to degrade them? See? Now, interestingly, there are some cells which make that mistake. And as you might guess, that would be a pathophysiological situation. And I'll talk about that when, uh, well, when, uh, when I decide to be able to bring it on. Not now, because it's just going to complicate things. But you understand what I'm saying now, why that malonyl-CoA will inhibit this beta form. Right? And it's also going to inhibit what? If malonyl-CoA builds up, it can't very well allow for more fatty acid to be synthesized, right? So that's the whole reason for, for utilizing it this way, right? So there's a third form, I told you, um, which is about an extra eight amino acids longer. And it's right around that serine residue that's so significant. And it's been suggested <laughs> that the third acetylcholcarboxylase is an RNA binding species. And because of that, it controls, that's right, the translation of the carboxylase. Okay. And what it will do is generate an alternative splicing because the protein bound to a specific region of the message. And interestingly, that third isoform regulating the translation of the polypeptide. And also I might add, if you can't use the transcript to make the protein, then you also corrupt the transcript's availability. And that means it's fidelity. And so the RNA itself can be broken down. If it's not being translated, it's broken down. Because it's not being translated, it's not bound to the ribosome. Remember polyribosome in the cytoplasm. Think about your high school cell biology course, right? So you understand how that works, right? Now, the mRNA encoding the longer version of the alpha form is in the liver and in the adipose, whereas that encoding the shorter one dominates in a lactating mammary gland. So you have the activity of the two alpha isoforms regulated also, I might add, and I'll tell you later if I decide to continue this by different phosphorylation, different types of phosphorylation, meaning different amino acids are getting phosphorylated, okay? 
So let me make sure I'm following my time here because I do not want to um, overdo this. <laughs> All right. So think about now the liver. Think about fatty acid synthesis. So we've made malonyl-CoA. The direction of the fatty acid metabolism in the liver is going to, of course, depend on the overall nutritional state. Remember, we talked about insulin and insulin regulating the activity of the carboxylase, right? By a phosphatase. So that means the overall nutritional capacity of the animal, if it's in starvation or fasting mode or in the well-fed state, has to be linked up directly with lipogenesis. Okay. So this is the key feature here. So the liver will convert, of course, carbohydrates to fatty acids. But in the fasted state, the animal will carry out fatty acid beta oxidation and ketogenesis and gluconeogenesis, right? So ketogenesis is just taking the acetyl-CoA that comes from the beta oxidation pathway removing two carbons at a time from preformed fatty acids, to use, utilizing the carnitine palmitoyl transferases one and two and getting that into the mitochondrial mitosol and then carrying out the set nested set of reactions for beta oxidation. That's all going, but at the same time, what are we doing? We're generating acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. So we're making so-called ketone bodies, which are essentially like soluble forms of two carbon residues left over from the beta oxidation pathway, right? But those get put into circulation and are driven out to uh, cell fate sources that require that carbon because glucose levels are dropping. Now, at the same time, gluconeogenesis is driven by the production of ATP you made in the mitochondrion after the beta oxidation because you synthesized NADH and FADH2 because beta oxidation not only does, does it make ketone bodies, acetoacetate, beta hydroxybutyrate also makes those two reduced nucleotides, NADH and FADH2, which of course will enter the electron transport chain. Right? So you see how fatty acid oxidation will give us the reducing power in the form of NADH and FADH2 via the electron transport chain, the proton pumping proton motive force across the inner mitochondrial membrane, that chemiosmotic event ontology, to ultimately generate ATP. And the ATP drives gluconeogenesis. So this is how the two things are connected, beta oxidation gluconeogenesis. What did I just tell you about the an anabolic pathway? Fatty acid synthesis is linked to glycolysis. See, so all the regulatory uh, phases of the control over glycolysis, such as the phosphorylation state of certain enzymes in the pathway or the production of allosteric activators for glycolysis, so of course, fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, right? And that particular kinase, how it's controlled by its phosphorylation state and ultimately, yes, by endocrine hormones, something we talked about in general biochemistry, okay? It's linked so that you get glycolysis, fatty acid synthesis working at the same time in cells. And then you get 
beta oxidation and gluconeogenesis when you switch the fate of the bioenergetic system. Right? You get what I'm saying? Okay. So there's basically a reciprocal relationship between fatty acid synthesis and beta oxidation. And we know that lipid and carbohydrate metabolism are under all that hormonal control. And so, you know, sorting all of that out takes a bit of time, right? We've talked already about malonyl-CoA and the fact that that basically is the rate determining step for entering carbon into fatty acid synthesis, all right? And I just told you that the control over the acetylcocobaxis also helps control the rate of beta oxidation because of that malonyl-CoA blocking its activity of the beta form of the carboxylase, which is right there on the membrane. And when that happens, beta oxidation is allowed to occur. Okay. So you stop synthesis and you allow beta oxidation. So in the well-fed animal where glucose is actively converted to the fatty acids, the concentration of MAL-CoA is, of course, what? Elevated, it's increased. So MAL-CoA at a micromolar concentration will inhibit the hepatic CPT1. So it will decrease the transfer of fatty acid from CoA to carnitine. And, of course, the translocation of the mitochondria. Okay, Now, that makes sense because we're making MAL-CoA the cell seems to be driving fatty acid synthesis. If you're driving fatty acid synthesis, why would you want to take those fatty acid coas which are end product ultimately, and drive them right back into the mitochondria for beta oxidation? You see, it violates, right, the major law of categorization.